If you have been here on Sunday nights, uh, you know that we are in a series we try to do over the course of the 52 Sundays of the year. I have a few interruptions here and there. And in 2015, we are in the training of the 12. And the idea of the training of the 12 series is that Jesus, in his public ministry, in the three years in which he trained the 12, he had some unique lessons that he taught them. And we believe those lessons are things that we can learn from today. We are, as a part of training the 12, now into this uh, three of three lessons on uh, the cross. And it's not specifically about being at Golgotha and what the apostles did. That was one way to take it. But I chose to really focus in on this verse from Luke chapter 9. Oops, I don't know what I did there. Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 23 through 25. And that's kind of been our theme first of, of this three lesson series. And Jesus said there, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so we have spent the last two weeks on the first two, deny yourself, and then last week, last Sunday night was take up your cross daily, and tonight we're going to talk about follow me. This will be the last one on the cross lessons. I hope that we have learn some uh, fundamentals about what it means to be a disciple. Because I think at its core, uh, these lessons are so important. Um, Even for people who I would call mature Christians or people who've been going to church their whole life, it is possible to do all of that and, you know, be very familiar with the Bible and the teachings of Jesus and the church and so forth and miss these very important lessons about denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following him. You are probably familiar with the name Ernest Shackleton. But if you're not, allow me to bring you up to speed on his well-known story. Ernest Shackleton, Sir Ernest Shackleton, Uh, was an adventurer, an explorer, and his goal was to explore and uh, seek out the lands that had not yet been explored. He did that many times. His most well-known one uh, was the uh, exploring of the South Pole, being the first to, to do that. And this happened about almost a little over 100 years ago. 1914 was when they set out there at the end of December. And it was, uh, even though he was planned, he was had meticulous preparations, he had done his homework, he was not new to exploring, uh, but everything that could go wrong during that exploration did. And it's a fascinating story. I would strongly encourage you to read it if you want to uh, learn a wonderful story of history and learn some great lessons of trial and adversity and, and strength that comes through those things and also leadership. When assembling his team, he famously took out an ad in the newspaper, and it read as exactly what you see on the screen. But for those who aren't seeing a screen, I'll read it. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, 
long months of complete darkness, constant danger. Safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And then his name followed by the address at which you could contact him. Uh, legend goes that several, several hundred men showed up uh, to embark on this call of a journey that was perilous. This story made me ask the question if Jesus could have put out an ad in the Jerusalem Post and called together a team. Now, what would he have written? Maybe something like this. Disciples wanted lifelong journey that requires you leave everything you have, everyone you love, and everything you'll ever want behind. Death is not only likely, but absolutely required on a daily basis. Successful journey will cost you everything you have, but your life and your eternity will never be the same. If you look at just Luke chapter 9, it is tremendous to think that he was able to call anyone that anyone would leave and follow such as they did. And so, as we've talked about denying yourself and taking up your cross daily and following me tonight, I hope that you'll uh, journey with me as we think through what was it that compelled them in hopes that it might compel us a little more deeply. I have, on my truck, the front two tires are in serious need of repair. If you turn the tires to the outside, you'll see that the inside of those tires is, is bald. There's no tread left. You can't tell that from the outside. The outside tread looks, you know, normal. But it's because those tires are misaligned. Now, I can... I can fix that problem with one of two ways. One is, I can take the good tires that are on the back of the truck and rotate them forward. And then the tires will be fine, right? But I haven't fixed the problem. Now the tires will be fine, but I haven't fixed the problem. You see, the problem is not the tire. The problem is the lack of alignment. So what I need to do to fix the problem is take it into someone who has a special machine that will lift the truck up and align it properly. So that regardless of what tires are on there, they are true to the road. This is what I think about when we talk about the idea of discipleship. It is not agreeing with Jesus or agreement with Jesus, but rather alignment with Jesus. And there's a difference. When you teach or preach, if you have the opportunity, uh, there's this weird experience that I personally had, I don't feel like I handle very well. Uh, it's praise and criticism. It's really hard. I mean, if you, it's hard not to be, to take praise too far, and it's hard not to let criticism sink too deep. 
But amongst the praise and the criticism, you kind of get a lot of, that was a good lesson. I appreciate that. That was, that was a good class. I thank you. I, I appreciated that, the way you pointed that out. There's a lot of things, and, and the only real way to respond to that is thank you. God is good. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. But that is agreement. Um, some of you do, and I don't want to discourage you from doing it. Some of you amen during sermons. Say a point that you really like. Amen. Yeah. And that's great. It's very encouraging. By the way, it just makes the preacher preach longer. So, <laughs> All right. I warned you. But that's agreement. It's unlikely, especially in this audience tonight, that I will find anyone who doesn't agree. I mean, you voluntarily got up, came here, took some of your time, spent some of your gas, came into this building to hear, in the building which is made to hear a guy who believes probably a lot of what you believe. So agreement is not that hard to do. Especially in this environment. And as much as I appreciate people saying they appreciate the message and they liked it and, and everything like and saying the amens and, and all of that, what matters is not agreement. What matters is alignment. Jesus had a multitude of crowds that followed him. And at the height of his ministry, you know, he was riding in on a donkey and they were making a, a path of palm leaves in front of him. They were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. The idea being, we're going to make this guy king. There were messages that Jesus taught about the Old Testament scriptures that were, man, they had to be like... What the scriptures say about his messages is that people said, I've never heard someone speak or teach like this before with such authority. They all agreed with him. A lot of them did. But when it came to aligning with Jesus, when it, when it came to affixing their lives to him and seeing him as the true and then Exactly correlating to whatever he said they did. That number is far fewer. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is, of course, the Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this, he really, we're going to talk about this on Sunday mornings, but the Sermon on the Mount is this beautiful, wonderful, powerful sermon to people that probably agree with Jesus, and you see Jesus kind of pushing them to make sure they're aligned with him. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, toward the end, we get four specific uh, pictures that Jesus uses, and it starts about the middle of the chapter, verse 13. First, he starts talking about the wide and narrow gates, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. They're saying, he was preaching this to a crowd, and he's saying, uh, 
many people ain't going to get this. Picture number two, tree and fruit. Watch out for uh, false prophets, he says. And he goes on to say, how do you distinguish verse 17? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He says, you want to know the difference between what's real and what's false, what's true and what's untrue. Look at the fruit. I've told this story that my grandmother, uh, in her later years, had an orchard. And, of course, in harvest season, easy to tell the difference between the trees. You got Golden Delicious trees over here. You got Jonathan trees over here. All the different kinds of trees. But there was a time of year when those trees were absolutely bare and every one of them looked the same. And Jesus is saying, if you want to understand the difference between the right and the wrong, the good and the bad, the real prophets and the false, you look at the fruit. Because you can't fake the fruit. Word picture number three. He says, therefore... I'm sorry, we're, we're going to look at uh, verse 21. Uh, Therefore, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Now he's... He's setting us up here. He's going to use the the third uh, picture. I said four, but I meant three. Go by what I mean and not by what I say. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We're going to skip down verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Of course, we know the song. But Jesus' point is not about the song. You see, the wise man and the foolish man were very similar. They both knew the word. They very likely, they wouldn't have attended church, of course, but they would have attended worship at the synagogue, at the temple. They, They would have... Uh, participated in the studying of scriptures. They would have amended the preaching. They would have agreed with the rabbis and the teachers of the time, maybe even the Pharisees and teacher, teachers of the law. Uh, but there, were, there was a difference, you see. There were some who agreed, and they were foolish. And there were some who aligned, and those were the ones who were wise. It was the ones not who heard the word. It's the ones who did the word, who put it into practice. And um, so I would love it more than anything if after I preach, you say nothing and just go change your life according to the Scripture. That's what's more valuable. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the, these, these two elements, and, and part one is, it's not just about agreeing. It's not just about saying amen. It's not just saying, oh, I know about that, Jesus, and he says a lot of stuff that I pretty much agree with. 
It is, I know Jesus, and I live by his word, and I long for relationship with him. And it's so deep and wonderful and intimate, and I love the people who are a part of his body. It, it is this total, complete alignment. This is discipleship. This is following me. Pretty convicting. Jesus doesn't pull any punches in these word pictures. Number two, following Jesus means leaving. It means leaving things behind. It means um, turning your back on something. In, In the first century, Jesus, of course, was not the only rabbi. There were lots of other rabbis and teachers that were worthy of following So back in that day, they had a saying, amongst disciples, which means followers, and they would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Which meant, basically, follow your rabbi, your teacher, so closely that everything that he does spills out on you. And that that his life and your life are one and the same. To do that meant that they had to leave behind what they knew. We know that. We talked about Matthew chapter 4 and the calling of uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And there's that verse. This is in Matthew 4 if you want to go back there. But it says, verse 21, Matthew 4, 21. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat. With their father preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and they left the boat and their father and followed him. When uh, would take teenagers to teen camp or to a retreat, and uh, there was a very convicting lesson, and they would say, "I want to, you know, I want to change my life, or I want to." I would, I would ask them, usually one of the questions was, that I would ask was, how will your life be different in following Jesus than it is right now? Because that's a question that we have to ask. Because discipleship has always been about not just following something, but that by default also means we turn away from other things. What have you left behind? I put that question to you. How does your life look different now that you follow Jesus? Or does it look pretty much the same and you kind of just do the churchy thing as it is convenient? You say, that's you're talking to a Sunday night crowd. Listen, this applies to any crowd of Christians. It's not just about agreement. It's about alignment. It's not just about following it's about leaving jesus gets more offensive he challenged the crowds uh, there were times when jesus was very popular um, and there are there are a couple of instances in scripture that point this out very specifically uh, if you want to turn to we'll get to it in a second matthew chapter 8 verse 18 and luke chapter 9 verse 57 Matthew 8, 18, and Luke 9, 57. Just put your finger in those two scriptures. 
when, when crowds wanted to follow Christ, the very, I think, the thing he did most of the time is he count, challenged them to count the cost. To very much think about the commitment that they were making. And until you even did that, you weren't ready. You, you're not ready to go to war unless you think about the size of your armies. You're not ready to build a tower unless you put some plans down and figure out the materials and, and see if it's, you can afford to do it. People have rushed into things many times throughout history and were made fools because they refused to do the necessary planning necessary for the endeavor that they undertook. All right, we're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 and following. When Jesus saw the crowd around them, he gave orders to cross the other side of the lake. When a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. By the way, this is like the uh, best example I can think of is you have your coach, you coach Little League, and a professional baseball player says, Hey, I'd like to be on your team. Okay. The teacher of the law says, I will follow you wherever you go. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, come on. Maybe a modern-day equivalent would be, you had someone considering placing membership who's in a very high position of power, authority, had great wealth. Warren Buffett comes and says, I think I'd like to place membership at Northside. Governor of the state or some other high political office. And Jesus doesn't jump into that. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And verse 23, then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. And without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. I tacked on a verse there that is not probably in, like yours is probably divided a little differently. I did that for a reason. Now flip over to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke records kind of the same way. Uh, the guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. He says, I don't have a place to sleep. Uh, this verse 59, somebody else comes and says, I'll follow you. And he says, let me go bury my dad. And he says, let the dead bury their dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then this is where it's a little different. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back for it, looks back as fit for service in the kingdom of God. And we preach those texts and feel almost obligated to explain away what Jesus was saying. Let me just unapologetically not explain it away. Jesus was sincere that when you followed him, that you would do so at great cost. He had no permanent place to be. He had no permanent people to be with. Jesus never knew where he would sleep, 
the next night, and he probably didn't know with whom he would stay. He had very different priorities. He called the disciples to have a different set of values and to do things much differently than everyone else. And he said, if you're going to follow me, that path is going to diverge greatly. It's easy to follow Jesus at the beginning when the paths are so close to people you love, to things you love. You know, I want to do this and have Jesus. I want to do this and have Jesus. I want to go here and have Jesus. I want to all of this. And Jesus said, There's, you're going to have to pay a cost here. And it's pretty steep. As people were following Jesus, he was pushing them away. I can only imagine such a thing today. You know, some people want to place membership at Northside, and they go in and meet with the elders, and all of the elders say, you don't want to do it. It's going to be a, it'll cost you everything you got. It, it, the worst decision you'll ever make from a worldly perspective. We don't think you should do it. I'm just using to point out the absolute difference in how Jesus called disciples. He was very upfront about the cost. And he was almost like, don't do it unless you're ready to do it. And even to some people, he said, you're not ready to do it. Following him, very difficult and costly and something that will come at a price that many don't want to pay. If you're turning in your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. To a mostly Jewish audience that had a problem with pork, eating human flesh was a bit sacrilege. Drinking human blood, absolute heresy. So John chapter 6, verse 66 they, many turned back and no longer followed him. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can hear it? Now, what's interesting to me is that Jesus will later say, he turns to the twelve and he says, do you too, you want to go? And Peter, you know, Peter was a guy who suffered from word regret, like we talked about this morning. But Peter this time got it right. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go to whom shall we go and these are guys who had left everything they left everything that's our call so as we think about following Jesus we have to be willing to count the cost and we have to understand that the same is true for us today it's no different really that our cost is great. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you ready to die? Turn to Luke chapter 14. <clears throat> Luke chapter 14, this is a verse I alluded to earlier. Verse 25. In my uh, Bible, it is appropriately titled, The Cost of Being a Disciple. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. 
again. The temptation here, okay, well, I know this seems harsh, but let me explain this culturally and contextually and historically and all that. I got let me not rush into that and just say, what if we took Jesus at face value? What if Jesus is saying that the call to follow him means that Jesus comes above your own children? The call to follow Jesus comes above the love toward your own spouse. Doesn't that radically change our call to, to, to discipleship within our families, how that looks. Um, Francis Chan, who I do not agree with everything he says, but he's right on some, th- some things. He wrote a, a book with his wife on marriage. And there's a plethora of books on marriage in the Christian space. But he goes down this route and he says, listen, Jesus didn't call us for better marriages. Jesus, in fact, said it would be better if you weren't married for this journey. He didn't say you couldn't, but he said it's going to be hard. Because your devotion to Christ must exceed your devotion to your spouse, to your own children. Man, that is convicting to me. Continue reading. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build who was not able to finish. Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, will he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. We just need to let that text sink in and ask personally. Most of the time in, in studying with people who want to be baptized or want to become a Christian, they'll come across a time where they say, I'm not sure if I know enough. And my answer to that is, you don't. What you need to know is whether you have estimated the cost, and if in your heart you believe, you are willing to pay that price. It's a heavy price. That is to say, I don't think it should be entered into lightly. Following Jesus should be a decision that you put serious thought into. If it's going to cost you, what is it going to cost you? And may I say, If it doesn't cost you anything, then according to Jesus, you're not a disciple. Did Jesus ever leave anyone alone? Look at the twelve. I mean, look at how he changed them. Look what he called them to leave. And we think of them and the after effect of that. But really, if you're going to follow Jesus, it will not be life as normal. 
It will cost you and your life will look different from what you want. That is what denying yourself and taking up your cross daily is all about. Giving up your hopes and dreams and aspirations. If it had been up to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they would have had a tremendously successful fishing business. Nothing against fishing businesses. But Jesus had something better in mind. In order to give that to them, they had to be willing to give up what they wanted. We think about cost in terms of us. When we think about it in terms of what Jesus wants for us, it's a price we're very willing to pay. So to follow Jesus, followers are called to do, I think, four things if we look. One, you've got to be willing to be in the minority. I know there's a lot of uh, consternation these days about our nation is not what it once was, and that's true. And there's quickly coming a time, if we're not already there, where Christians will be the persecuted minority. And to which I kind of respond, that's closer to normal for Christianity. That's closer to normal for disciples. We're supposed to be different. You know, that whole salt and light thing um, means that we're going to be different. We're seeking out a narrow gate. My great uncle used to tell his children when they were young that he would quote Matthew 7 about the wide and the narrow, narrow gate. And he said, when you come to me and say that everyone else is doing it, uh, that is a, not a good argument. I want you doing things that not everyone else is doing. Number two, you've got to be willing to live in the minority. I mean, I'm sorry, to, to live differently. Can I borrow your glasses, Brent? <laughs> um. And, and how you'll know that is what Jesus said, your fruit. You'll, you'll know. Um, over the course of my life, I've gained and lost a lot of weight. Uh, every time I lose a significant amount of weight, people come up and they, you know, oh, man. And then they, they say, well, how did you do it? What are you doing? Right? Because I must be not eating Twinkies at every meal in order to lose this weight. The, the question is, you know, what did you do that affected the change? So that's how we have to think of it. Does Jesus make you look any different? Do people come up to you and say, you look, you've been different. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something different. What, what did you do? The correct answer is not what I did, but what he did. Number three, we have to know Jesus personally. And this is what Jesus said when he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And Lord is the correct title. But we can call him Lord and not do what he says. Parented for longer than 30 seconds, you understand this concept. Just because someone hears you doesn't mean they're aligning with you. So you're... you're it comes down to followers have to have a personal, deep, real, intimate relationship. It's way above, above and beyond going to church, and going to church is not a bad thing. But the question is, how did he respond at the judgment day? Away from me, I never knew you. What do you mean you never knew me? You created me. You know me so well. He's saying there, I don't, I don't even know this guy. Ever have somebody come up to you and they pretend like they know you and they're like, Hey, man, it's good to see you. And you're like, 
Hey, man, that's what Jesus is saying here. Don't come up to him on Judgment Day like, hey, Jesus, so good to see you. And that's like the first time you've talked to him in 27 years, besides someone else leading a prayer. Don't go, hey, Jesus, it's really good to see you. And that's like, you haven't read anything he's written in a couple of decades. You just let other people do the interpreting for you. Does he know you? Yes. The question is, do you know him? Are you in a relationship with him? Number four, do what he said. You just got to do what he said. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. First John chapter 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is our atoning sacrifice. Not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now catch this. Oh, this is, man, this rocks my world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. This is why it's so crucial that we we got to get away from looking at the text and going, okay, well, I know that seems harsh, but that's not really what it means, and let me explain why. Blah. we got to know what he said if we're ever going to do what he says. Verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. You're like, I want to know Jesus. I want to know. How do I know him? How do I know that I know him? Verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If your walk doesn't line up with your talk, and as one who talks professionally, I will freely confess it is far easier to say it than to walk it. It's far easier to say it than to do it. But the doing it is more important. Far more important. So we ask this question, we end with this. How are you called to follow Jesus? Being a disciple of Jesus is the most costly decision you'll ever make. If it hasn't cost you much of anything, to be a disciple, you must deny yourself completely, kill yourself daily. And follow him, whatever it costs you. But I want to end on this point. Specific, the specific application of following Jesus looks different for each disciple. I want you to go to John chapter 21. And this is a weird little story packed in the back of John. You almost miss it. But it is, uh, this opened my eyes of understanding. Um. We, we do so much comparison, you know, that's one of the horrible things about social media is that we're always comparing, you know, and oh, my kids not as good as they are. I'm not as good as a mom and dad. I, I, I need to be doing more. I need to be doing this or that. We're always comparing to one another. And we do this in the church as well. And that's to some degree, it's good to have people that you look up to and that help you along. But your call to discipleship is different, and how Jesus calls you to die is different, and what he calls you to give up is different than everyone else's. Okay? For in verse John 21, and uh, 
We're going to look specifically at verses 15 through 23, where Peter is, uh, Jesus is reinstating Peter after his denial. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's overwhelmed with grief. Um, Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Like, drop it, Jesus. I said I was sorry. I don't know what else you want me to do. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Verse uh, 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And uh, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, verse 18 Catch this. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against him at the supper. Is John saying this, hey, it's me. And when Peter said to him, Lord, what about him? Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And so because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers the disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. This is John writing this. He said, I only want him to remain alive until I return. What is that to you? I don't know if you catch this, but Jesus is beautifully saying, he's talking about how Peter's going to die. All of the disciples are going to be martyred, save Judas. And he's saying to him, Peter, I know you love me. And because you love me, that's going to cost you your life. And he, man, he had to be thinking of the time when he, he called him out of that fishing boat. And he said, Peter, follow me. And now he's saying the same thing. Follow me. How Jesus calls you is different than how he's going to call every other disciple. And what it costs you will be different for you than for anyone else. Don't compare it at all. Don't, don't worry about John. Don't worry about anyone else but Jesus. But be the disciple who follows him. And however he calls you to die, whatever cost he asks you to pay, you'll pay. Because he loves you. And that's what it is about. How are you called to follow? I can't say. I can't give you specific applications. I implore you then with three things. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. I hope this series has been helpful to you tonight in your journey as disciples. And I hope you employ yourself to daily... Know Jesus and know that he loves you. But if you don't know that tonight, we'd love to help you know the Savior who knows you and who loves you. And believe it or not, is calling you to die. That you might live. It's the best decision you'll ever make. 
If you need that or any other need that we can help with, please come as we stand and sing.